You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I talk about the Bible. We read the Bible. We talk about it. You listen. <laughs> it works. That's the arrangement we've had so far, and so far, I think it's working out for us. Yeah, yeah, so far. <laughs> Proper order of events there. Uh, so, it, in particular, is that part about reading the Bible and then, you know, then talking about it, as opposed to what most people on the internet do today. Uh, so... Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It, yeah Ooh, yeah that's been some interesting stuff so um uh, well yeah well that that being said um we are reading the bible and talking about it when we last left off um absalom had absalom absalom um, that, yeah like it's, it's one of those it's based off sh- one of those well it's based off shalom shalom yeah so okay absalom okay so anyway he um he went and met with David and didn't like his meeting, apparently. So um, yeah. then he's starting a conspiracy, and that's really the breaking point. It seemed like a good, good cliffhanger there. We'll see what he's got going yeah, on. Yeah, because that meeting with David, I mean, it, we, we talked about last week how it was that very official meeting. You know, he gets the kiss from David, but it's not the son receiving the kiss from the father. It's the king bestows this kiss. And there, there's no words. David doesn't say anything. And you know, David, who says so much in other times, who, who has so many words that you know he composed such a large section of psalms, is silent upon meeting his son, who's been in exile for two years. And so, actually, he's been in exile longer than that because he'd been in Gesher before that. And now he's been in Jerusalem two years. So you know, he's not the the father who's thrilled to see the long lost son. And we talked about some, you know, when you read this in light of the prodigal son and how there is such a difference between David's response as father and God's response as father. But a lot of that goes back to the fact that in making any kind of judgment with Absalom and, and whether it's the acceptance, which kind of allows at least the tacit approval of what Absalom did to Amnon, uh, Amnon then, uh, you know, there's a problem there. Or if he says, you know, I can't accept him back, then he's, he's saying, I'm totally messing up my, my uh, parallels here. So accepting Absalom says that Absalom did everything right, and it was fine that he killed his brother. And not accepting Absalom, then he's saying that what Amnon did to Tamar was completely all right. That's what I'm trying to say. And so as a father, you know, that puts him in a really difficult position. But as a king, it's an even more difficult position because Amnon was the heir apparent. Now Absalom's the heir apparent. And, you know, the thing is, the king in Israel, yes, there's the dynastic um, element to it where the, the son is supposed to inherit. We saw that back in chapter seven. But the most important element and aspect of being the king of Israel is God has to be with you. And obviously, mm-hmm. God wasn't with Amnon, or Amnon would have survived. And, uh, you know, good reason that God wasn't with Amnon. And what's interesting to me in this whole story is Absalom's rebellion began with 
Tamar, his sister. And yet she disappears from the story completely, except for in these little hints. And it kind of shows you how even within that culture, her her person, her story was kind of lost. And so the writer, when he brings it back in in these very subtle ways, like the fact that David is contrasted, his response to the woman with, in, from Tekoa is contrasted with his response with Tamar, you, you begin to see the the way that the compassion for her is completely lacking. and it's really an indictment on David even beyond, I think in some ways what he did with David and Bathsheba with Bathsheba because I mean, Tamar's his daughter. So, mm-hmm. but um, we, we see Absalom launch, launching. And, and that's not to say, that's not to say that uh, Bathsheba was any less of a person because she wasn't the right. daughter of the King, but you would expect that kind of protection uh, from a father toward one of his daughters. Precisely. Precisely. And so, I mean, a lot of times, even some of the most terrible, wicked men on earth uh, adore their children enough to to protect them from other terrible, wicked people. And so it's kind of, it's troubling. It's troubling. So two years, Absalom's been in Jerusalem. He's waited for this moment. And now he is getting ready to act. And we're going to pick up with uh, verse one. After this, uh, chapter 15, by the way, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. So after this, that's referring to that encounter with David after he saw David, which really leads you to this question. Was Absalom's, was diving into this conspiracy the result of not having a warmer welcome from his father or was having the welcome for the, from the father part of the conspiracy was being accepted back into the royal courts necessary for him to carry out his plot. I think that, and again, I think this is uh, something that we, we kind of left to our own devices with, with from scripture, that this is Amnon's response to the way David has treated him. I don't think that uh, this is necessarily, I mean, yeah, he may have had the, the thoughts hatching because i mean he seems to be the kind of guy who he plans things out he has a mm-hmm. long-term view of things he probably had 50 different scenarios in his brain that he could have carried out and when david just was so formal he's like we're done now we're going to, to change things so um after that encounter he acquires a chariot and horses now he is the first israelite in the bible to get a chariot uh, before this, uh, Bergen points out that everyone who had a chariot in the Bible was an enemy of Israel. So the Egyptians, the Canaanite, the idea that he would get this chariot is actually almost placing him in the category of being an enemy of Israel. It, hmm. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, but it's also playing out the prophecy. Remember back when Saul was appointed king and Samuel stood up and said, I'm going to do it. Because y'all want it. God said to go with what you want. But by the way, kings are going to multiply horses and chariots to themselves. They're going to make your young men serve them. What's Amnon done? He's got chariots. He's got horses. And now he's got 50 young men who run along and tell everybody how great he is whenever he arrives in town. He, he's gathering those trappings of royalty. He's starting to present himself in a kingly manner. 
And, you know, when David had, had captured the chariots and the horses back earlier in the book, he didn't keep the, the, um, the horses he either that we had the episode on whether that word in there meant to hamstring the horses as to cripple them or he castrated them we, we don't know for sure but absalom is now exceeding david in kind of this pomp and circumstance kind of um presentation of himself to the masses so he continues verse two and absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate and when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? For when he said, you are, you are a servant uh, is of such and such tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claim is good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. So gates are traditionally where the elders and the judges would gather and they would sit and they would um, hand down these decrees that concerning various matters. And that was really kind of your first stop in legal matters. And then if you needed more insight, more wisdom, and then it would progress up to the king eventually. And so the king would appoint these judges and elders to to hear these cases before they arrived to him. And, and Absalom saying, the king doesn't care enough from people from your area. Notice he wanted to know what tribe they were from. What city are you from? Oh, by the way, your tribe, not everybody else's tribe, but your specific tribe doesn't have someone designated to hear from you because the king doesn't care about you. I, right. This is this is very political. It's very savvy because what do you do when you're trying to oust the, the old regime? You divide any kind of support that they've consolidated under themselves. And go ahead. Right. Well, and, and I also find it interesting, and I don't remember the exact wording, um, I should have looked it up because I was looking at this earlier, is that I find it interesting that Absalom's using this method to get people uh, into his good graces by going after people who have legal grievances. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar to what David did when he was gathering people um, to defend himself from Saul. Absolutely. Yeah. It, people in debt, people who are oppressed. I mean, mm -hmm. it shows you that politics don't change. It's been the same since the beginning of time. I mean, listen to the presidential campaign promises that we heard this last go around. I'm going to forgive this debt. I'm going to make sure you get this money. It, it, politics have always been the same. Who do you go after when you're looking for support? Well, the disenfranchised. And you look for the ones the system has neglected, the system doesn't work for. And if there's somebody that the system may be working for, but you still need more numbers, make them think the system doesn't work for you. And that's what Absalom is doing here. Yep. The system doesn't work for you because you are from the wrong side of the tracks, basically, is what he's saying. And he's also, you know, everybody he's talking to, hey, you've got a good claim. It's right. You need to get justice. I agree with you. Now, everybody he talks to can't be right. Everybody he talks to can't have a good claim, especially if he was talking to people on both sides of the dispute. So he's telling them exactly what they want to hear. And, you know, th this leads us to a question, though. How accurate is what Absalom is saying? Because Absalom here, first of all, we need to note that this is not referring to a judge as in the case of, in the sense of the book of judges. Those are warrior chieftains and, and lords. 
this is the fact that the king of Israel is supposed to serve as the judge, the final judge of the nation, you know, except for God. But on one hand, what Absalom is doing is um, could be very accurate in the depiction of what's going on. Because if we note that David isn't going out like he was supposed to, Joab even kind of, you know, chastised David for not being at Rabbah. This is what caused the problem with Bathsheba. If he had been out on the war field, on the battlefield, he wouldn't have been in a position to even see her so that he could send for her. So mm -hmm. David isn't doing all he needs to be doing as a king. He's not fulfilling those kingly obligations. And obviously, David has not done this for Tamar. He never enacted any kind of justice for Tamar which is the grievance that, uh, that Absalom has against his father. On the other hand, the woman of Tekoa had no problem getting to the, to the king. This is a widow. That she's one of the lower people on the rungs of society, but how much of that was Joab pulling strings, making sure she got in front of the king when nobody else might have? And so we, we have this, this question of how valid are the concerns of Absalom. Because the thing with politics, and I hate politics, everybody who knows me knows this, uh, the thing with politics is you take a small problem, a problem that maybe affects, you know, five out of a hundred people, and you blow it up. You make it sound like it's a massive problem, that, it, you know, the numbers are staggering, they're overwhelming. So this could have been a problem, but it may not have been on the scope that Absalom presents it mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. he's at the gate. He's getting them before they get to on the way of the gate. He's not letting them actually get there so they can check it out themselves. He's stopping them. So you, the, the writer kind of leaves you to say, Hey, what really is happening here? Because we've got to remember too, in the book of Samuel, the monarchy is not good. The monarchy is always suspicious. There's always a problem with it. And so we have, to, we have to wonder a little bit how much of this is a critique of David as a king and how much of it is just Absalom with his hurt feelings. And, you know, there does seem to be some legitimacy to the claims from the standpoint of nobody's protesting this. Nobody is saying, hey, dude, you're wrong. Nobody's uh, saying, you know, you, you're misrepresenting your dad here. They're, they're actually being drawn to Absalom in this moment. So there, there seems to be some kind of grievance that the people have against David that Absalom is addressing. So it, it, it all makes you wonder what's really going on in Israel at this time that the writer has not informed us of. So verse four. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. Definitely David's son here. I mean, he knows how to say what he wants to say without actually saying it, because to be the judge mm -hmm. of the land is to be the king. I mean, it's just that simple. He's essentially campaigning for the office of king. And, you know, he's making that same promise that every politician makes. The guy in office isn't your friend. He's doing a horrible job, but I'm going to do better. I'm going to make sure it's right. And so we, we've all heard that. And, you know, just 
election season to turn on the TV and listen to the campaign commercials. And <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it's this idea that politics and power, particularly the, the, the kingship, corrupts because the writer of Samuel is going to make sure that we know everyone who ascends to the throne, they're going to be faced with temptation. And almost every king is going to mess it up and they're going to, to succumb to the temptations that come with this kind of great power. I mean, we've already seen it with David. And David's probably the best king that Israel ever had. The question is, excuse me, is whether Absalom's going to be any different. So verse 8, whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Now. The writing here is very clever because this word for take is not your typical word for take that we usually like we found in Genesis 6 where the sons of God looked at the daughters of man and took for them for wives or where Eve took the fruit or Pharaoh took Sarah. Uh, it's We find this word used three times in the story of Amnon and Tamar. Twice it's used to describe what Amnon does to Tamar. He takes her. He seizes her mm -hmm. as another translation because this is more emphatic than just taking it. It's, there's, there's almost a violent aspect to it. The second time, uh, the third time it's used in that chapter is when Absalom tells his servants, take him. And he's talking about taking Amnon to kill him. And so um, the, these, these words are, are the identical and alter Robert Alter in his translation. He notes that, that verbally, these two events, the, the taking of Tamar and the taking of Amnon, Absalom's uh, political victims is what he calls them. His political victims are verbally identical. And so there's this, this mirroring of where Absalom has risen up against this great injustice. And now he's doing what he hates in order to get justice. And that's, that's the problem so often when we as humans, oh, well, this person was violent and we need to stop them. So how do we counter it? We counter it with violence. We become what we originally stood against. And so we, this is the reason why we need God's, God's wisdom and guidance to address uh, situations that we as humanity face. Now, the other thing that's interesting in this verse he kisses them. His insincere kiss mirrors the insincere kiss that he received from his father. And does it also kind of foreshadow uh, the kiss from Judas? You know, I hadn't thought about that, but... Because we've got betrayal and kissing all going on at the same time. That, that's what I thought of when you were talking about this. So I, I was... Wondering if that was where you were going. I was kind of hoping it would be, but I guess. I didn't go there, but I mean, it, uh, there's definitely something there. Uh, maybe when we get to the Gospels, we'll have to look back at this and see how we pull it forward into the New Testament, because that would be an interesting parallel if we could build a strong enough case. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we can. Uh, so keep listening. <laughs> <We've>... <laughs> we'll see what we can, we'll see what we can do. Yeah, because well, and well, and I was also you know because that was one of the things because I, I kind of had my head in the gospel anyway uh, earlier when you were talking about well I guess it was last ep was it last episode yes <laughs> last episode when you were talking about um, David uh, receiving Absalom 
and how he's allowed to turn return home, but he's not restored. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about, and I know the prodigal son is a is a parable. Mm-hmm. It's not a, uh, you know, it's not a narrative part of the Bible. But I was thinking of contrasting that with what God would call a good father, that whenever he would come home, he would run out and meet him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and versus David here, even though he's good and called a man after God's own heart, he still is no replacement for the for the ruler and the father that that God is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I think that's where sometimes we as Christians really fall down in living out our faith. Uh, I, excuse me. I, I think one of the things I've seen so often is we as Christians will go out and tell people, hey, you need to quit sinning. You need to repent. You need to, to get away from those people that you were with that facilitated this evil lifestyle. I'm sorry, allergies are hitting. Um, but the uh, but then we don't restore them to our community. We we don't welcome them in and help them walk through that restoration process in the physical sense. And so people are kind of forced to make these decisions where they have to cut off community with their quote unquote evil friends, but then they aren't brought into the community or the household of faith. And so they're kind mm-hmm. of left out there struggling. And what does this do? It does the same thing it winds up doing to Absalom. It leads to bitterness. It leads to disillusionment. It it says, I can't trust the love that I'm being offered. And you got to remember so often when people see Christians, they're equating us with God. They think our responses are what God's responses are. So if we aren't being kind and loving and compassionate and merciful and forgiving, they think that this is how God is. And, you know, and this really, I hadn't planned on going here, but this really ties back to how Joab perceived David as the king and, you know, trying to find that balance of being God's representative without trying to say that we are God. And so the, the struggle has been going on for a very long time, and we need to be able to, to reach out with open arms to people who, where do they belong in the world? Because they are trying to find that place where they fit. Are we restoring them? To God's family? Or are we saying, you know, you, you need to sit over there in house arrest? And are we, we fostering those bitter spirits and that bitter heart that so often drives people away, not just from the community of faith, but also from God himself? And so, um, and, you know, go ahead. Well, I'd say, and, and that's where, uh, you know, we should definitely watch what we say about people who are outside the church because we do set up a, a an us versus them kind mm-hmm. of mentality. And Paul says that they're not the enemy. Right. Um, the, the, they're not the, the enemy, that, but they are the mission. <laughs> the, you know, and whenever we start getting into wanting to invite people in who are not part of it, and uh, Joe and I, Joe and you and I think I talked about this a little bit about how there is... Um, there's the this church jargon that goes on and this these culture shock things <laughs> that go on and yeah the church should be different than the world but i think so, too often we rely on insider language and a lot of clickish behavior mm-hmm. and also um you know cuz someone coming in from the outside i mean can you can you think of like well, number one how hard it is to get used to that but then there's also got to be this underlying uh idea of Oh well, if this is what they're saying about my friends now, what what kind of things would they say about me? Mm-hmm. What what did they say about me before I got here? Mm-hmm. 
And so, well, yeah, that's even even <laughs> in my own story, because even though I was raised in church and, you know, when I was divorced, one of the reasons why I stayed in that abusive marriage for so long was because I knew what the church said about divorced women. And, you know, I mm -hmm. didn't want to be that person. And so looking back, I, I'm so grateful for the, that time because I did get that different perspective of the church crowd than if I had continued without the break in the relationship, or at least the strain in the relationship. Um, but the other interesting thing is in Samuel, the person who has the clear view of what's going on, what's wrong with the system, is never somebody within the system. It's somebody outside the system. And so I think if we as Christians could actually recognize that sometimes we need those people coming in who weren't raised within the system who can say, hey, this is the problem. This is what I'm seeing as someone who's not so close to it that I can't actually see it anymore. And so because that's that's who the people in, in Samuel who say, we've got to fix this. It's Hannah. She opens the book. She's the outsider. She's the barren woman, the one who doesn't count for anything in their society. It's the, the prophets who come in and offer that, that word who are not part of the royal courts. Because, I mean, when Nathan comes in and he talks to David, David already had a prophet. Nathan isn't that prophet. And so he comes in from outside. And we're going to see more and more examples of that as we go through. And the outsider perspective, and I'm not talking about like an outsider as in an unbeliever. I'm talking about an outsider who maybe he's somebody new to the faith in, in our culture and uh, our context. Maybe someone who didn't come up in our denomination. Maybe someone who belongs to a different, um, different field of theology or theological thought than what we're comfortable with. <clears throat> and so... We need to be open to these critiques and, you know, don't accept them blindly and go, oh, well, somebody who disagrees with me said something, so I need to accept this now. But to carefully weigh whether there's some validity to what they say and not just to reject them because they aren't one of us. Um, because, mm. you know, that's not what the Bible shows. And we especially don't see that here in the book of Samuel. But <clears throat> back to, to Samuel, verse 6. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So this is the beginning of a trend that we're going to see through the next few chapters. When we talk about people who are supporting Absalom, we're going to be talking about Israel. We're going to be talking about the men of Israel. It's going to be these all-encompassing terms that refer to Israel as a whole. When we talk about the people supporting David, we're going to be talking about the royal courts. We're going to be talking about servants of the king. We, we, we're going to have this very clear-cut delineation between David's friends and Absalom. And the, this, the troubling thing about this is Absalom has the support of the nation. David just has this little pocket of followers, which tells you that Absalom's supporters, they aren't just, you know, the, these little group of malcontents who, who don't like what the king's doing. This is an overwhelming, broad-reaching, yes, they want Absalom, not David. So it makes you wonder, what's David doing that's made everybody so mad? And, you know, it could just be as simple as kingdoms take taxes. Kingdoms require warriors. There's drafts. People can, uh, kings at this time could press anyone into service that they wanted to. 
We already saw that. I mean, David sent for another man's wife and she was brought to him. Nobody tried to stop him. So, you know, it could very much be that Absalom is playing on these kind of new rules and regulations that the people weren't really used to. And because we don't ever get the sense that Saul's kingdom is really solidified. It exists in name and that he does have some armies, but you don't get the same kind of grandeur where David, you know, he's got a city at this. He's had two capital cities by this point. He's built a castle or a palace. He uh, wants to build a temple. So he's been building walls to fortify cities and he is really digging in and making his mark on the land. And that requires these governmental programs of taxation and um, calling the people into work. So verse seven, and at the end of 40 years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay a vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. So, okay, we haven't had any major like textual issues in a while. So we're overdue because this is the book of Samuel. Uh, 40 years is absolutely not possible. It does not work in the timeline. It so doesn't work that even Alter doesn't go with the Masoretic text here. He's He kicks it out and he switches over to the, um, the Septuagint and he goes with their translation. And the Septuagint says that it's four years and not 40, which makes absolutely sense. Um, but the, um, the rabbis, of course, did not uh, go with the Septuagint. They wanted to stick with the Hebrew. So they... Of course not. <laughs> yeah, so we got to come up with some other reason because... David dies in the 40th year of his reign. And we know that after all of this with Absalom, David's going to go on and reign some more. So it can't be 40 years. And um, the sages explain that this is 40 years since Israel asked for a king. And so, like, okay, it, it might work. Uh, Zamora reads this as an idiom that basically after the time of Absalom's wandering and not really belonging had been completed, now he's he's going to go fulfill this um, vow. Now, the mention of a vow, of course, this is another connection right back to the Nazarite because the, the Nazarite would take the Nazarite vow and would grow the long hair. And then at the completion of the vow, they would go and they would offer a sacrifice and they would cut their hair. So uh, this is another reason why Absalom is viewed as a Nazarite, at least traditionally. Again, um, we aren't really sure if he is because the text doesn't doesn't say that. And I do think it's interesting that the the talk of the hair and the vow are kept completely separate within the text. So much so. Well, well, and something also that just. To point out here, um, you mentioned the last one that Nazarites were allowed to um, cut their hair if it became cumbersome. Mm -hmm. Too heavy. And so, yeah. So would that have something to do with the weighing of it to like to prove like, you know, this is serious. Five pounds of hair. That's a lot. <laughs> it you know? is. I mean, go put a five pound sack of flour on your head. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, the way I read it in the Talmud was that they that the Talmud was extrapolating from Absalom. Um, so I, you know, it's kind of which comes first, the chicken or the egg, whether Absalom was the one who gave us this principle or whether the principle existed and Absalom was observing it because we don't have it written down. There's 
really very little written in the Bible about a Nazarite. Uh, you were right. just supposed to kind of know. And it fell under the Mishnah, the oral law. And we've talked about before, but it's always good to remember, the Torah is the written law. These are the headlines. This is the basic, most concise record of what the laws are supposed to be. The Mishnah is the oral law. And the oral law is what allows you to know how to apply it. It's the story below the headline. And this is where even um, Dr. Young in uh, Jesus, the Jewish theologian, he talks about how Jesus appeals to the oral law when it talks about breaking the Sabbath. And I don't want to get too far into that. But if there is something, and oh, it started raining here. Uh, if there is more to the Nazarite vow than what's in the scripture, it would be in the Mishnah. and. Hopefully it was recorded correctly in the Talmud. We don't know uh, because, right. you know, that was several hundred years later. But the third thing from this verse is uh, rule number four and Emily's rules of how to read the Bible. Geography is important. Uh, Absalom asked permission to go to Hebron. Now, when we remember that David has gone through so much trouble, he, he's, you know, we had the whole thing with Uzzah and people dying, trying to get the ark into Jerusalem. And we would presume at this point, Jerusalem's going to be the primary location of most religious activities because that's where the ark is. It's a little weird. So rule number three, if it's weird, it's important. It's a little weird that Absalom says, I want to go back to Hebron to worship God in order to fulfill this vow. But David, who is wise and knows all things, according to the woman of Koa, doesn't seem to have any issue with this. And I think, once again, as a reader who knows what's getting ready to happen, we've got some kind of clue. We're going, how do you not see this? David, what's wrong with you? Wake up. There's something else happening here. Now, the reason why Hebron is important is this is the city where David was originally crowned king of all of Israel. And so the place where David's coronation took place, it was his first capital city. It's also the city where Absalom was born. So, you know, there's this, this idea that, okay, maybe Absalom wants to go back to his hometown. You know, I, that's the only solution I can come up with why David isn't having a problem with it. Because, you know, we grew up in a small town church and there's times that you, you want to go back to the church where you grew up in. You want to go back to that place of worship where you knew everybody. See, see who's still around. See whose kids have gotten bigger. You know, those, those things happen. And to think that they wouldn't happen back then is kind of weird because people, again, there's still people. We've had great illustration of that with the opening of this chapter. And the, the other reason why David may not have stopped Absalom is if Absalom really had made a vow to um, go back to Hebron and David stopped Absalom from fulfilling a vow that he made to God, now David would bear the guilt of causing Absalom to sin and to break God's word. So, you know, I guess err on the side of caution here. It's one of the, the other uh, things I think might be highly likely. So verse eight, 
For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. So Absalom is following the, the example of Simon and Levi. I mean, right back, we talked about how the rape of Tamar was connected so well and so deeply with the rape of Dina. Absalom's doing the same thing with Simon and Levi. Now, everything Absalom's done up to this point might be a little questionable, but there's still some kind of justification. You can see some way to kind of vindicate it because it's a reaction to something that David did or didn't do. And all of his, his actions seem pointed at David. But at this point, Absalom crosses a line because just like Simon and Levi, the critique wasn't that they stood up against the princess Shechem for what he had done to Dina. The, the critique was that they used something sacred belonging to God in order to carry out these acts of violence. So the critique is the same here with Absalom. And it, it, this is where Absalom really begins to cross that line from questionable into downright, no, we don't do that. So, right. But verse 9, the king said to him, go in peace. And so he arose and went to Hebron. Uh, throw this in. It's a kind of a little interesting thing. It's, it's not major, but the rabbis actually based uh, the fact that you should never tell someone to go in peace off of this verse. If you tell someone to go in peace, you're basically telling them to go, go pursue the events that lead to your death and destruction. And so you don't tell people to go in peace. You tell them to go to peace because that's what Jethro told Moses before arriving in the promised land. So uh, just, you know, a little bit of trivia there. So verse 10, but Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the, all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of, a tr of the trumpet, then say Absalom is king at Hebron. So definitely before he gets to Hebron, he has a game plan in place. He has inspired so much loyalty that he can send messengers throughout Israel. They aren't letting anything go on. David has no clue. He's blessed the trip. He's told Absalom, go, go in peace. Go do your thing. And the story kind of connects us back because we're talking about that, that trumpet, that shofar, that connects us back to Ehud. And it also connects us back to um, Samson. So really interesting kind of commentary hinted at and I, I don't want to make too much of this but there's some some hint does it also hint to gideon uh, that's i'm sorry that sorry well? gideon i didn't mean samson gideon yes okay. absolutely I, I was trying to place where the trumpets were in samson's story <laughs> and i was going i don't remember trumpets <laughs> in samson's story but that you know there's a lot you know it's more than just a couple pages right <laughs> right now yeah this is this is def definitely gideon now if the writer is trying to make a connection, uh, the connection's really interesting because we've got one of those things, you've got these, these beautiful threads and you really see the depth of scripture. So when Ehud attacked um, the king of uh, King Ehud, he was the king of the Moabites. Now, David is a direct descendant of Ruth, the Moabite. And so there was always a little bit of whispering, a little bit of 
you know, he he's not really an Israelite. He's not really supposed to be allowed to do this because he's not really one of us. His his mama wasn't pure. He doesn't have the right pedigree. Now, you would say, okay, you know, at least I did when I read this. I'm like, well, but Absalom is David's son. The thing is, if you're a Nazarite, you don't have parents, at least not functionally, not in the eyes of the law, because. The, the reason for that is the prohibition against touching dead bodies. The scripture very specifically says you don't even get to bury your parents. Why? Because they're not your parents anymore. You've removed yourself from the covenant community at the same level to, to do, solely devote yourself to this purpose that you believe God would have for your life. And we talked about this uh, with, with Samson, where... The, the Nazarite really only had four laws to follow. They didn't take on, you know, the 613 laws of the Torah and then tack on four more. They actually did away with the 613 and only had the four to follow. And it's because they become something completely separate from even the community of faith and definitely to the world. And during that time, they're actually allowed to break um, other laws within the Torah. So... Uh, so you've got that connection where, you know, there might be this this um, this kind of tacit critique of his own father about being the son of a Moabite and that Absalom saying, I'm not that person. I have no connection with that. I am something completely different. If we're talking about Samson, I mean, it's about Gideon. We've got to remember the people wish to proclaim Gideon king. And they were the ones who said, yes, you've done such a great job fighting the Midianites that we want you to rule over us. And, of course, Gideon declined, at least in name. And whenever he declined, he also built a shrine, which we see David was David's greatest intent. David's greatest intent is to build a tabernacle. That's what he wants to do. And he built the shrine. And then... Uh, trying to remember the name of the son abimelech his name means my father is king abimelech killed off all of his brothers just like absalom killed off amnon and right so there there's both ideas captured in this and we should also remember gideon's battle cry a sword for the lord and for gideon so gideon started right. that that elevation and that um praise of himself even before Abimelech decided to overstep bounds completely. So verse 11, And Absalom went with 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. Okay, so this is brilliant, okay? This, this is one of those things that I just... It, it really stands out and demonstrates how smart Absalom really is. Because, okay, he's the heir apparent. He's the prince of Israel. And he goes out into the royal courts. He's been restored. He's been brought back in, at least formally. And he says, hey, guys, I want you to make a pilgrimage with me. Who wants to go? Now, 200 men who've been vying for position, jockeying for their place in the royal courts, he had no problem getting that many guys to go with him. Now, the, the text tells us very specifically they go in their innocence. They, they don't know anything of what's going on. But they go with Absalom to Hebron, and this serves three purposes. Number one, it makes it look like these 200 guys left with Absalom for the purpose of being a part of his coronation. 
Like they approve. David's closest people, the people from the royal courts, are going to support Absalom over David, whether they do or not. Because remember, nobody's going to be putting this out on Facebook. There's not going to be any tweets. There's not going to be any Instagrams. They are being cloistered away. They're being kept from the public so that they are not allowed to tell anyone the truth. So now the, the general masses think that David's own courts have rebelled. David's wondering who in the world he can trust. Does he know these guys actually didn't know what was going to happen? Does he really believe that? I mean, it, it's kind of a hard call to make. But the third thing is they're political prisoners because they can't say anything. If they say anything, they're endangering their own lives. And so this really sets Absalom up perfectly from a public relations position. I mean, it gives the right perspective, uh, perspective and, and perception from the public about his position within the kingdom and within the, um, the upper echelons of society within the kingdom. And it's also just practically it makes so much sense. And you begin to kind of get an idea of how smart this guy really is, because this is not the kind of thing that you know, you just wake up one morning and go, oh, I think I'm going to take 200 people along. You know, he had to actually play on this out. So verse 12, while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel. I always get Ahithophel. Sorry. Yeah, that's one heck of a <laughs> Isn't name. Isn't it? The Gilanite, David's counselor from his city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So offering sacrifices, this is part of the coronation. This is part of being um, made king. We saw that in 1 Samuel 11, 14 through 15. We're going to see it again in 1 Kings 1, 9 through 11. Uh, Gilo is a city we only have mentioned here, and we have it mentioned in Joshua 15, 51. And we just know it's a city of Judah. That, that's really all we know about it. Um, Ahithophel is the only one of David's courts that we're told actually switches sides. He's the only one that actually changes allegiances. Um, everybody else seems to still be very loyal to David during this, but this guy is singled out. And notice Absalom sent for him. He's not part of that 200. He actually sends for him and says, bring him in. I want him on my side. Now, what I found to be like completely just baffling is when I was reading commentary uh, commentaries on this passage, people were often puzzled why Ahithophel would would make this this switch. What what's what why would he change allegiances? And the thing is, if we if we read a little further, we go into Second Samuel chapter twenty three verse thirty four. We we find out that Ahithophel the Gilanite, uh, sometimes it's, it just says Gilo, not Gilanite. Uh, he's the son, um, he has a son named Eliam, okay? That's all we're told. We don't, we don't know anything about him. But if we back up to 2 Samuel eleven three, where we have this little verse where David asked a question, he wants to know who this woman is. He inquires after the woman, and one of uh, and one said, "Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite?" So Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. Now, 
I have grandkids and, you know, I would have done terrible things to protect my kids. But whenever you talk about your grandkids, now we're talking a whole new level of you don't mess with these people. You don't mess with these children. And so we're being reminded that all of this didn't just begin with Amnon and Tamar. It actually began with David and Bathsheba. And so you have to wonder now, how long had Ahithophel waited for a chance to do something in retaliation to, to address this wrong that David had done to his granddaughter? You know, he, had he just been waiting and buying his time? Absalom seems to recognize that there's some kind of break in the relationship that he can capitalize on. Otherwise, why didn't he send for a, a different counselor? David didn't just have one counselor. He had several counselors. And yet Ahithophel seems to be the one that, that attracts Absalom's attention. And really for Ahithophel, I mean, it's a no-brainer. You can remain with David, who raped your granddaughter, or you can go with Absalom, who stood up and did the right thing when his sister was attacked. Of the two, which one, you know, is anybody going to pick? There, there's, there's no reason for him to choose to go, to stay with David, but there's every reason in the world for him to choose Absalom as being superior to David. And it was mind-blowing to me that people actually thought that this was, that this was something that should be puzzling. They couldn't figure it out. Why would this be any kind of um, you know, quandary? I, I don't think there's any reason in the world for this to, to produce any great question. It just makes basic sense on a very fundamental uh, human level. And so the other thing we got going on here is this is the first time Absalom, uh, he, he gets a counselor. Before this, Amnon had had a counselor. David had had counselors. But Absalom had kind of kept to himself. He didn't say anything. We're specifically told that he doesn't say anything uh, after the rape of Tamar. And so we, we're being told not only is Absalom, you know, getting ready to plot this rebellion, he is getting his, his royal court into place. He's making sure all the right people are around him. He's putting that counselor into play. And sadly, uh, this does not work well for him uh, eventually. But as of right now, he, he's doing the right thing. He's doing everything right from the perspective of he's saying what people want to hear. He's creating this discontent and division within the community. He's making sure everyone knows how discontent they should be with David. Uh, he's surrounding himself with the right people, or at least appearing to. Uh, he he's mirroring the great and celebrated event within David's own life. And the thing is, supporting Absalom actually has some validity to it because the promise wasn't that David would reign forever. The, the promise was that David's house would stay in control. So by supporting Absalom over David, the people aren't necessarily... Um, rejecting the Davidic monarchy. They're actually continuing it. They're just continuing it with David's son versus David himself. And so he has really positioned himself well. And there, there is some debate among scholars at this point. Was Absalom's intent at this point in time, in this moment, 
is it to kill David so that he can take over the throne? Or is his intent just to displace David, to kind of force David into an early retirement of sorts, and so that he could reign? If Absalom believed the propaganda that he had been telling everybody, uh, he very, very well could have believed that David was needed to be removed uh, because David was either too old or David had disqualified himself uh, through the consequences of his sin. Absalom could believe that because David was failing to bring justice to Tamar, that David had to be removed. We, we aren't given those kinds of inner workings, but we also do know that it wasn't completely unnatural or abnormal for a son within a kingdom to rule as a kind of co-regent for an aging father who did manage to uh, retain the throne. And so the idea that he would still reign while David was in the middle, uh, still retain the throne, but he would actually fulfill the duties of a king, like I said, not really a, a huge stretch for anyone. Now, it says that um, the people with Absalom keeps increasing, and we're going to find that the people this is going to continue to be the case and we're going to have uh, a lot more happening very quickly that you just kind of wonder what it would have been like to be in Israel at this point in time because the, the state of unrest is crazy. So verse 13, and a messenger came to David saying the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. So Absalom's gaining full support uh, again, you've got that all-encompassing language, the men of Israel, not the idea of a royal court. And so then David said to all of his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there'll be no escape uh, for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us, quickly bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David has decided that rather than remaining in Jerusalem, the city that he fought so hard for, the city where the, the Ark of the Covenant is, where he wants to build his temple, he's going to leave. Almost everyone agrees that the reason why he wants to leave at this point isn't because he's so scared of Absalom, but he doesn't want Absalom to destroy the city. Because remember, Jerusalem, he's been building this up, and if there had been a prolonged siege the, the walls could be ruined. The people would starve. Anyone who had a minor grievance against David now would have a major grievance against David. Mm -hmm. Siege warfare was never pretty. And so David chooses to relinquish the one thing he held so dear and just move out of the way and, and to get himself and those loyal to him, the most loyal, and the most useful, we're going to see that he actually does a very kind of sophisticated, uh, sophisticated calling process out of the town so that the town and these people aren't going to be, uh, aren't going to be in danger. So verse 15, and the king's servant said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord, the king decides to do. Verse uh, 16, and the king went out and all his household after him and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. So. The servants are ready to go on the run, and we are having images, these flashbacks to David. You know, he's in the hill country, he's hiding in the caves, he's in with the Philistines, he, he's darting around the, the countryside, fleeing from Saul. And 
there's this glimmer of how great David was in those moments. David is always his best when he's in exile. When he gets what he wants, when he has power, this is when David, he lets us down. But when he's out there on the ragged edge, depending on God's grace and God's faithfulness, this is when he astounds us. Now, he does make one major um, major blunder here. He leaves 10 concubines. Now, part of leaving 10 concubines behind was, yes, the, the, the royal palace still needed to be taken care of. They had to administer, you know, uh, the duties to the servants. They had to make sure the animals were fed and all of that stuff. But David has this really bad history of leaving women behind. We've noticed this before. He left Ab, I'm sorry, Michal behind when he was on the run from Saul. We know what happened there. We know that Saul marries her off to someone else and she isn't honored as David's wife. So we should already be planning something bad is going to happen to these women. David, despite everything he gets right, the way he treats and values women in his own life, and it seems like the closer they get to him, the less value he has for them. It should be setting us up to be paying attention for what's going to happen next. And so the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. So this is pretty much the last house before you actually leave the, the immediate area of Jerusalem. And so they, they pause for just a moment. And all of his servants passed him by, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before, before the king. So the people who are going with David... Um, these are not just Israelites. And this is really also saying something very significant about David. How you read this is going to depend on <clears throat> whether you're taking a favorable reading or a negative reading. Uh, some com- commentators have said, oh, look, all he could take with him were the mercenary soldiers. These are the ones who he had paid. They were on his payroll. So, of course, they went with him because they had this obligation. Other commentators uh, commentators are going to actually push for the idea that these are people who had been in exile from their own home country, that they had left everything behind once before, and now they're ready to pick up and move again because they're that devoted for David. Their devotion to David brought them to Jerusalem, and now their devotion from David is going to lead them out of Jerusalem. And so this is really the first time we have these people named um, by the, you know, called by name specifically. Now, the 600 Gittites from Gath, again, debate. Are these uh, people who were natives of Gath? Were they part of the, you know, Gath? We got to remember that's the city of Goliath. That's the city of the Philistines. This is one of the capitals. Were they people who were born and raised there? Are they Philistines? Or are they uh, Israelites who, once Gath was defeated, moved in and took possession of the land? And that's where they had been living, but had moved to Jerusalem specifically to follow David. How you answer that is going to kind of just depend, again, on which way you want to read this. Are, Are the people who follow David, do they have to be strictly Israelites in order to follow the king of Israel? Or by 
strictly being Israelites. I'm saying, are we talking about someone who's Israelite by birth or is becoming part of the covenant community by following those rules for the sojourner, by following the, the rules placed for the um, foreigner who lives in your midst back in Leviticus? Is that enough for them to be considered part of the nation of Israel and to be trusted as someone to protect the king of Israel? So I kind of actually lean towards the idea that these are outsiders coming in. And we've seen this specifically spelled out before that it doesn't just have to refer to <clears throat> geography. And a lot of times when it is referring just to geography within the book of Samuel, we have that um, designator and I should have looked it up. I didn't take time to do that. That designator that, you know, we have so-and-so who lived at from the tribe of. So we, we are have it very clearly spelled out that this person, yes, was called um, called by this name, this geographic designator, but he was actually an Israelite because he was from the tribe. We don't have this here. So I tend to think that these are definitely outsiders and definitely foreigners who, who, have, um, who have pledged allegiance to, to David because he's a mighty warrior. And when you have mighty warriors, I have a mighty warrior. They attract other warriors. This is just how it works. And so, because mm -hmm. David is somebody they can, they can respect. And so uh, we're going to get into a specific story about a particular Gittite. And I don't want to get too far involved because we're going to need to take that apart. So I think we're going to call it good right here. And that way we can, really look at um another one of those fun names itai the the gittite and see what he has to okay. contribute to david's uh uh flight from from jerusalem that's the word i was looking for so yeah well no i'm looking forward to to hearing that because i i kind of read through that and it's a really interesting conversation mm -hmm. that that goes on and it's kind of see almost seems out of place for everything that's going on yeah in the way it's put together. So, um, yeah, hopefully everyone else is enjoying it and looking forward to that. Um, if you want to be part of the conversation as always, Raven Creek SC on all the social media that gets you in touch with us and Raven Creek SC.com is where you can find this show, show notes and all of the Raven Creek, uh, podcast right there. <laughs> Raven Creek SC.com. Come be a part of everything. Absolutely. So, anyway. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.